Hi, thanks for joining this week's podcast with Pastor James Jones of the Divergent Church. We hope you will be blessed by the message you are about to hear. If you would like some more information about the church, please feel free to reach out via email at divergentcog at aol.com or go over and check out our website, divergentcog.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you have a blessed day. We are again in the third installment of the Quest for Revival. This week talking about the handling of the holy. And there's no need to recap what we've already done. Um, You can go back and review those messages if you'd like to hear them. But we're going to talk this week about handling the holy. And we're going to start in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. This is to the point now where the ark has come to rest at the house of Obed-Edom. Business has gone on as usual in Israel and in Jerusalem. But now something is still missing. And David has a mind to do this thing once again. But this time a little differently. Let's look and see what happens. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, starting in verse 1. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. Now, stop right there for a second. That's not what he said last time. Last time it was, we want to go get the ark, let's go get the ark, let's have a party, come on, let's do this thing, let's grab a new cart, throw that ark on there and get it on back here. Because what did we say? A lot of times people don't want to be better, they want to feel better. Let me bring back the good feelings. Let me bring, oh, I want to feel good. But in order to be good, we got to do it the right way, and they didn't do it the right way. Now, what we're looking at here is a total different approach by David. In verse 2 it says, David said, No one may carry the ark but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before Him forever. We're going to get some insight into how he got that in just a moment. Verse 3. David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Then David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. Of the sons of Kohath, Uriel, the chief, and 120 of his brothers. Of the sons of Merari, Asiah, the chief, and 220 of his brethren. Of the sons of Gershom, Joel, the chief, and 130 of his brethren. Of the sons of Elsaphon, Shemaiah, the chief, and 200 of his brethren. Of the sons of Hebron, Eliel, the chief, and eighty of his brethren, and of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab, the chief, and one hundred and twelve of his brethren. And David called for Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. Watch this. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult Him about the proper order. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. 
And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be the singers, accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals, by raising the voice with resounding joy. Things have changed. Last week we looked at them going to get the ark and there was great jubilance. There was great excitement. There was great joy because this thing should be done. We should usher back in the presence. We need the glory. It's what distinguishes us as the people of God. And so David understood. We didn't even inquire during the reign of Saul. This has been 20 years. And we talked about it for 20 years on the Day of Atonement. What did they do? What did the priest do when he went into the tabernacle and there was no ark of the covenant there? What did he do? And then we started realizing some of these principles really do relate to today. Because maybe they just got so good at playing church, they didn't need the presence of God anymore. Maybe they got so good at going through the motions and doing the things they've always done that whether God was there or not, everybody felt good about it. Church, I don't want to feel good. I want to be good. I don't want to feel better. I want to be better. And that's going to happen in the presence of God. So they understood. They wanted to bring the glory back. They wanted to get it back. So last week we talked about that. But they did it all wrong. They handled it the same way the world handled it. The way the world handled the glory of God by throwing it on, an, uh, on a cart and, and sending it off, that's the way they wanted to handle the glory. We're going to throw the ark on a cart. But that's not the way it should be. See, things went awry. They wanted to do it their way. Modern day problems are being illustrated right now. We're going to talk about them in a few minutes. But they're being illustrated. They knew something was missing. They knew that they had to do something or forfeit who they were. Slowly dying out. So David does his research. Right away, David takes a different approach than what we saw last week when we were reading. Right away, he says in verse 2, David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before Him forever. He didn't say that last week. Maybe he didn't know. But David did his homework. He went back and studied and he went back and researched. How was this done in days past? How was this done before? And he has an explanation as to why this happened in verse 12 and 13 of the text. He said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves. We're going to come back to that because that is an important statement. Sanctify yourselves. You and your brethren that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I prepared for it. Watch this. For because you didn't do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. And this is the important part here. Because we did not consult him about the proper order. When we get so full of ourselves and full of our desire to grow a church or to grow a movement and we don't consult God first, we might as well just go ahead and plan to fail. If we're going to do it our way, it's not going to work. Not the way it should, not the way it could. But when we do it our way, when we do it uh, a way that's not of God, 
it will land only in failure. But if we do it God's way, if we chase after Him, Oh, come on, church, if we chase after him. See, David saw this. David got a hold of this here. David saw something. He's like, boy, we messed up. But you know why the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart? David never quit, did he? I like David. I mess up a lot. Y'all know that. There's no secret. But I don't quit. I don't ever quit. David didn't quit. David, because, right, you know what? All right, God don't want me to do it. Uzzah's dead. The ark said Obed-Edom. I'm just going to go be a man of war. That's what I'm good at. I'm a great king, a great conqueror. No, there was still something missing. I still want to do right. I still want to serve God. How do I do this? So he went back and he said, oh, wait a second. If I go look at the law that, that, that Moses put down because God ordained it, that they carried the Levites carried it on poles. It was never on a cart. It wasn't transported like that. God had an order and he established something that he wanted done. You see, David's confession there at the end of verse 13, we didn't even inquire of the Lord. We didn't ask Him. We didn't consult Him. We just did it. We, we, we just jumped into it. We, man, we want to have church. Come on, let's go have some church. Why didn't we acquire God first? Why didn't we inquire of God first? Consulting Him. In verse 14 and 15, he says to sanctify themselves that they brought up the ark as Moses had commanded. Watch this, according to the word of the Lord. David did his research. The glory of God was missing. He really wanted it back. He wanted it back where it needed to be. And the first time he, he just let that uh, ambition get the best of him, he ran out and he did it. Let's get a cart. Let's put it on there. Here comes the ark. Let's celebrate. Oh, my gosh. Uzzah just died. We can't do this. We can't bring Put it over at Obed-Edom's house. Get that. Just this right there. Leave it set. Let's go on back without it. But something was still stirring in him. And he began to look. What did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? Where did I mess up? And he went back and he saw, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord, do not operate in contradiction to the word from God, church. Never allow yourself to operate in contradiction to the word of God. But... When at all possible, line your life up with the Word of God. David did that. He looked back and said, how is the appropriate way? What is the... God has put order into this. It's not just about bringing an ark back. It's not just about a box. It's not just about a piece of furniture in a temple. This is about handling the presence of God Almighty. What he was doing and what God is doing here, he's illustrating something to us today, church, and we're going to get into this in a minute. We're going to start unfolding this and unpacking this in a minute. But God was illustrating something to you and I. They weren't just carrying a box or a piece of furniture or establishing you know, an altar. They were handling the holy. They were doing something. They were bringing bringing forth the glory in the presence of God, and there is a prescribed way to do it. It's not going to be done the way we think of it. It's not going to be done the way we come up with. It's got to be His way, because it's the best way. So here's the reason for looking back to these events as we have. We've been looking back at these events in this series, The Quest for Revival, and we're going to continue to look a little bit next week. But the reason for looking back at these offenses is a world in darkness needs a church in revival. We live in a world of darkness. You don't have to go far to find it. You look at any screen and you'll find it. I told you two weeks ago, people on the Internet arguing over cheese. They're ready to, they're ready to cut each other over a piece of cheese. 
Right? The, the people just angry. I, when my wife and I, when we lived in Baltimore, we used to, we used to kind of joke around. It's like everybody in Baltimore was mad all the time. Like you can't walk down. And I actually had friends that go like, hey, we went down to visit Baltimore. Everybody just so mad. Yeah, they are. All the time you walk around Baltimore, everybody just in a bad mood. We used to love to go down, and we challenged each other to go down and see how many people we could make smile. Because if you've ever noticed, you walk in public and you smile at somebody, one of two things is going to happen. They're going to smile or they're going to run, one or the other, because they're going to wonder what's wrong with you. I guess it depends on how you smile at them, too. But we just walked down. We would walk down. We'd just start smiling. How many people can, I got that one. I got that. We're, we're, we're keeping score. This was a game. We're like, how many people can we make smile in Baltimore? It's not easy, church. But we live in a world of darkness, not just one city, but we, we live in a world of darkness. People are depressed. People are discouraged. People are upset. People are angry. People are, 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 are beaten down. And you know why? Because we're trying to find peace outside of Jesus Christ. In the book of Isaiah, he says there is no peace. Because during Isaiah's time, people were trying to establish peace without God. They were looking to government. They were looking to temporary uh, uh, relief. They were looking to different, some way to establish some form of peace, but they weren't looking to God. They looked to false gods. They looked to the things of the world. They looked to wealth. They looked to whatever. They were trying to establish peace without Jesus Christ. In our day, we have, and, and I'm, I'm not, believe me, I am a proponent of medicine. I think we need to, to, I'm glad we have the medical system we do. And the, the medicine that we're saying, I say that to say this, today we put all of our stock in tranquilizers. We put all of our stock in some kind of pill and some kind of you know, uh, self-help book to find my peace. I'm not going to find peace outside of Jesus Christ. I'm not. I may have an imbalance and I may need some medicine for that. Okay, so be it. Not me. Y'all look at me like, oh, that's what's wrong with... Maybe, I don't know. But... <laughs> But the thing about it is, that is all well and good. Get the body regulated. Get the body healthy. But you will still not have peace without Jesus Christ. You will not. What about, what if I'm my best, I'm living my best life now, not without Jesus Christ. You're not. I'm sorry, you're not. I don't care how much money you have, how much fame you have, how much popularity, health, or anything else you have. Without Jesus Christ, you have no peace. Jesus said, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be dismayed. He is our peace that has broken down every wall, church. He is our peace. Yes, indeed. A world in darkness needs a church in revival. But what if the glory has departed? Man, what if the glory has departed? The desire exists, but is it the desire for God or is it the desire to feel good? Do I want to be good or do I want to feel good? You see, because in, in the world we live in today, in the culture we live in today, in the world around us, and this is the thinking of the world that Romans 12 warns us about, it's all about thinking good, feeling good. Change your thinking. The Word of God will liberate us and free us. I don't want to just feel good. I want to be good. If I have a headache from a tumor, I don't want to aspirin. I want the tumor removed. Right? A world in darkness needs a church in revival. 
You know, there's a story. I'm, I'm going to get way off this outline, and this thing's going to take me two weeks anyway. So you know what? I just have no idea where we're going. But I just got <laughs> something just. Look, there was this point where Jesus was walking to Jairus' house. And I don't even have the exact text right now because I didn't plan this. It just really hit me. There was a point where Jesus was walking to Jairus' house because his daughter was sick. And as he came there, he finds out she'd been sick her whole, she'd been, she's 12 years old, she's sick. He's going there. On his way there, the woman with the issue of blood, she's been sick. Watch this. Jairus' daughter was 12 years old. She's been sick for 12 years. I want you to see the illustration here. Jesus was walking to Jairus' house to heal his 12-year-old daughter who had been sick. This woman had been sick as long as that girl had been alive. But she knew if I could just touch the hem of his garment, if I could just get the hem. And as she reaches out and touches the hem, he's walking and he looks and there's a crowd. Who touched me? And of course, you can imagine this. The disciples, what do you mean? We all touched you. But no virtue had flown. Somebody touched me with a reason, with a purpose. Somebody was reaching out to grab me as I was walking by. As I was walking by to do something, somebody reached out and grabbed hold of me. And she said, I did. Ah, perfect, thank you. And suddenly a woman, for, he said to, suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Twelve years she had been sick. He was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, and he does. He gets there, and he heals her, and he lifts her up at 12 years old. But I want you to see the illustration that God just showed me, and I thank God for it, church. I am not a genius. This is literally the Holy Spirit. God showed me something. This lady had been sick as long as that child had been alive, but God is walking through the earth right now wanting to resurrect people, wanting to bring people back, wanting to heal people. But as long as they've been alive, we've been sick. We have been sick as long as this generation has been alive. The church has been lost. We've been caught in our own thing, backbiting and bickering and arguing. And who can have the biggest sanctuary on Sunday? And who's got the best light show? And who's got this and that? Forget the nonsense. The church has been sick as long as this generation has been alive. Jesus wants to come and reach this generation this is a tribulation revelation generation that he wants to reach but in order for him to reach them they've got to have somewhere to go they have got to have somewhere to go and so we as the church are that lady in the crowd that's what we are right now we're sick we've been sick as long as this generation has been alive but I tell you what I'm sitting in a room full of people right now who said if I could just touch the hem of his garment if I could just get close to him everything could change we need the glory back we are on a quest for revival, church, and it is found at the feet of Jesus Christ. It's not found in a program. It's not found in a method. It's not found in seven steps. It is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. This world is lost. This world is looking. And when they come into the church, what do they find? Do they find God or do they find entertainment? Do they find love or do they find backbiting and bickering because we're so caught up in ourselves? I tell you what, if they come here, they're going to find love. I've never been around such a crazy bunch of people in my life. I've never seen a pastor that can get up and stutter and forget to turn his mic on everything else. And everybody be like, that's all right. We love you, pastor. You go to some place. Oh, nope. All right. Next. Just one more chance. Because we serve together here. I, I'm not the CEO of Divergent, am I? 
We're all co-laborers, co-owners. I fill a role. I do my job. I do what I've called to do. And I'm equipping others to do what they're called to do. That's joy to me. I love doing that. I love getting down in it and working with people like these spiritual gift surveys we're doing. I'm looking forward to working with people and getting involved in ministry and step by step. And, and, and just like a, an infant, you know, they'll fall, pick them back up, fall, pick them back up, put them on that bicycle, push them without the training wheels, all that stuff. Somebody did that for me one day, church. When I first came, I don't even know where I'm at. When I first came to the pastor when I was younger and told him I was called to ministry, in all love and sincerity, he looked at me, oh my gosh, you're serious. That was how he responded to me, honest to goodness. Church, if you could, and some of you see me like in a, in a social group atmosphere where I don't know people in a large crowd, I, I, I still struggle. I thought I was beyond it. I went to the uh, uh, Sir Frederick, and I got there late, and, I, and, and it got the best of me. I had to kind of back out a little bit, and I was like, I waved to Darren. He came over and talked to me a minute. I wasn't, but I felt it, and I was like, man, this, this isn't me. This, this isn't, I'm not gift, I'm, I'm not naturally able to do this, okay? I'm not naturally able to stand in front of people to speak, to teach, to, to, to do anything like this. But because of the Holy Spirit of God, he uses the weak. He uses the foolish. That's what he does. I can't stand up here and brag about what I am. I have to stand up here and say, yep, the foolish things that confound the wise. Church, I am foolish. But I was smart enough to say, yes, Lord. You see, we're on a quest for revival. The glory may have departed. The church may have been sick as long as this generation has been alive. But I'm telling you, there is a remnant in this church. And not just divergent other churches. There is a remnant that is pushing through the crowd saying, if I could just get the hem of it, if I could just get a, a touch of Jesus Christ, if I could just get close to him, it would change everything. You see, Jesus has to heal the church first so this generation has a place to go to. And that's what he's doing right now. I'm telling you, when the church becomes a standing up on its feet, when the church begins to moving like the arm, mighty army it's called to be, the, the, the doors won't hold them out. I mean, they're going to flood in. They're not going to be room enough for them. There's going to be open field meetings because there just isn't a building big enough for the people who want Jesus Christ. Not the people who want to come to church, but the people who want Jesus Christ. There is a hunger that is stirring up in these last days. And we need to be on the quest for revival right now or we will miss it. I made a post the other day. That's right. We're not waiting on revival. Revival's waiting on us. God's already, here it is. Come get it, church. Come get it. The glory had departed. We learned valuable lessons from what we've been looking at. David returned to how the glory is to be handled. According to the word of the Lord, how do we return the glory to the church? We're the one with the issue of blood. We're the one that has been, we're part of that body that has been sick as long as this generation has been alive. There's a few ways to do it, but first and foremost, we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. I wasn't planning on going here, but 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And I'm going to read verse 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. But we're really going to key in on verse 14. But 12 through 16 of 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 
And it says this, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon. Now Solomon had, we're, we're talking about this Ark of the Covenant. We're talking about it being in Jerusalem. David didn't build the temple, but Solomon built the temple. Now the Ark has been put into the temple. And the glory of God has filled the temple as the temple has been dedicated. And now God is responding. And this is what he says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people. You say, why would God do that? Because he loves us. That's called conviction, church. Because when I do that, verse 14 if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house and my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be perpetually, will be there perpetually. This house, this temple, the temple that Solomon built, there's significance to that, and we're going to get to it in a minute. This is how you bring the glory back. God said to Solomon, if there comes a time when there's no rain, if there comes a time when there's locusts, if there comes a time when there's plague, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves... If judgment comes, if convict, don't, don't shun conviction. Don't shun judgment. If God didn't love us, just keep on going sinning. Just, just get away from me and sin all you want. But instead, it's like a boat that's going too far. You kind of trouble the waters and see if you can get that boat to turn back on the right track. And that's what God does. If my people will humble themselves, turn from their way, seek my face, pray, I will hear from heaven. I'm not just going to hear their prayer. I'm going to heal the land. I'm going to go through them and go for them. Why? Because this temple, oh man, this is going to be important in a minute. This temple that I've picked out, we have been building to this point in this message. And I was a little worried about that goose chase a minute ago, but we're going to get to the point this morning. This temple, this temple that I had chosen for myself. See, all of this had happened. The ark had gone. God has a long game that we don't see. The people had a contempt for the presence of God. The people did not have proper priests because they were about themselves and about pleasures. The people lost the glory of God. The glory of God's return. But as the glory of God returned, David did it in an improper way and his anger struck out and struck Uzzah down. And then they researched it, and then they did their studying. Then they went back and looked. There is a proper way to handle the glory of God. So we have asked the glory of God to come back to this place. And they bring it back to this place. And God says, I've chose Solomon, your son, to build a temple for my glory. So Solomon builds this temple for the glory of God. And the glory of God is now in the temple and has been dedicated. And God says, I have chosen this place for my glory. There's significance there, and we're going to come back to it in about 10 minutes. I'm going to keep you on edge this morning. I'm going to try and keep you awake, church. Prayer is the number one thing. Charles Spurgeon once said, The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. 
If God be near a church, it must pray. If he is not, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. Those words remain true today from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon once said, The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meeting. If God be near a church, it must pray. If He not be near, one of the first tokens of His absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. We can look at all the step processes, programs to blessing, clever new schemes, the next great thing, but without prayer, we literally labor in vain. How many of you have ever heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle? You've probably heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Very popular, very big in the late 90s and, and still today, really. The pastor of that church, Jim Cimbala. I, I loved, uh, when I was early in ministry, I read a lot of Jim Cimbala stuff because he encouraged me when I was at Celebration. Matter of fact, I really felt a connection with him. One of the things he had said about Brooklyn Tabernacle when he was pastoring there, he said there were literally Sundays I didn't feel like going there myself. And, and, and I could say that at the first church I was pastoring, there was, it was a mess when I got there. It was, it was a big time. I mean, we had, I, I'd have, I've got stories to tell you one day, church. It was a mess. But here's the thing. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was weary. And him and his wife went uh, from Brooklyn, New York. He was sick. He, he, had, he had come down with a cold and under the weather. He just needed a break, needed a vacation. So they went down to Florida. And they went on a, a fishing trip down in Florida. And um, while he was down there, he said he was trying to refresh himself. He was trying to wonder, you know, if I'm even going back to the church, maybe I'll just go somewhere else. I, I, I want to do something for the Lord, but I feel like I just can't seem to break through in the inner city of Brooklyn. But then Jim Cimbala writes in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He says as he was out on this vacation, he was out on this retreat with his wife he said God literally said the following to me not in an audible voice but in my spirit I know God literally said this to me if you and your wife will lead my people to pray and call upon my name you will never lack for something fresh to preach I will supply all the money that's needed for both the church and for your family and you will never have a building large enough to contain the crowds that I will send. And from that revelation, he came back. He talked to the church. He couldn't wait to tell them what was coming. And he initiated what is very famous for that church, their Tuesday night prayer meetings. He said, we're going to start meeting on Tuesday night. And he told them, this is going to be the core of who we are moving forward. He said, you know, Sunday will always, we're always going to have Sunday, we're always going to put our effort into it, but Tuesday will be our identity. And over the course of the early 90s, that first prayer service was 15 to 18. If you've ever seen a picture of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, by two years later, that prayer service was overflowing every Tuesday night. Overflow, in the hallway, in the Sunday school rooms, just all of it. They had overflow rooms for prayer. And it wasn't anything special. It wasn't a big performance, but it was they came in, and Jim Simbel himself said he came in. He said, I would just start leading us in a couple of worship songs, just me, by myself. Not, not, not a big orchestra, not a big choir. Just got up and said, Lord. And they began to sing a simple worship song. And then they began to pray. 
And throughout that book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, he talks about the miracles. He talks about the healings. He talks about the people that came in. And then he talks about how God was moving so greatly that they would go and talk about it at, at their job and in their homes. And people were coming in wanting a touch from God. They weren't saying, I want to go where the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir sings. They weren't saying, I want to hear Jim Simbler. They were saying, I want a touch from God. God has done something in somebody's life, and revival broke out in that little church in Brooklyn to make it the huge church that it is today. And church, if you go on their website today, I did this yesterday. Just wanted to look at it because I was thinking about it. If you go on their church today, one of the first things you'll see is Tuesday night prayer meeting because it's still that important. We, we mentioned the Brownsville revival. Do you understand that revival started? When a group of people from the church gathered for prayer, they didn't even know what they were praying for. They just felt moved by God to pray. They just, we need to pray. They went to the pastor, we need to pray. What are you praying? We don't know. We're just praying. God wants to do something and we want to pray. Isn't that how the church was birthed? Jesus said, go and wait for the promise. He didn't tell them what you were waiting for. He didn't tell them what was going on. Just go and wait. And they went for days. And they waited on the Lord. Were you guys able to load that video I sent you? Yes. Uh, if you would, turn your attention. I like this video. It really kind of, we're going to draw this to a close real soon here, but I like this video. It kind of illustrates how we want to end this thing off. Revival. Now, Webster's Dictionary will tell you it means restoration to life, consciousness, vigor, strength. Awakening, the act of waking from sleep, or a recognition, realization, or coming into awareness of something. Revival, awakening. Northampton, Massachusetts, 1730s. Jonathan Edwards begins to preach, followed by George Whitfield. Whitfield spoke to thousands in the open air about the concept of spiritual rebirth, while Edwards warned of sinners in the hands of an angry God. Revival swept the colonies. Countless lives began to change. Churches began to change. And history remembers this as the first great awakening. September 23rd, 1857, at lunchtime in New York City, a layman named Jeremy Lanfear kneels to pray. America was in spiritual, political, and economic decline. There was financial panic and rumors of a civil war, and so Lanfear invited thousands to a rented hall on Fulton Street to pray. Six people showed up. Just six people. But those six people began to pray. Three weeks later, 40 people were praying. Within six months, 10,000 people were gathered daily for prayer. Over the next two years, over one million Americans out of a total population of 30 million put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This became known as the Great Prayer Revival. In the early 1970s, the cover of Life magazine featured over 80,000 young people gathering for Jesus at an event in Dallas called Explo 72. A year before, the cover of Time magazine read The Jesus Revolution. Because something undeniable was happening. Something unexplainable was happening. Something was sweeping young people all over America. It became known as the Jesus Movement and accounted for more baptisms in a single year than any other year in the history of the Southern Baptists. 400,000 people were baptized in one year. The First Great Awakening the Great Prayer Revival, the Jesus Movement. What's the link? What is the common denominator? What is the first step? How do things like this happen? It's prayer. The first step is always prayer. History is clear. The record is undeniable. The blueprint is right in front of us. 
Every great move of God begins when his people pray. Not ordinary prayer, extraordinary prayer. Unified prayer, desperate prayer. And so it's time, it's time to pray. It's time to pray in repentance. It's time to pray for reconciliation. It's time to pray for personal renewal in our own lives. It's time to beg God for spiritual awakening in our time and in our generation right now. God can do more in a moment than we can ever do in a lifetime when his people pray. It's time to pray. There's enough power here to go out and change the world. And we pray that this will be the beginning of a spiritual awakening that will sweep the world. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord.